Well, it's my pleasure to be here today. Uh, my wife sends her greetings. Uh, she's at home with Boaz. Uh, we've just had a very long trip. Uh, we've spent almost two months in the U.S. and Mexico, and it was it's a little bit uh, too much for them to be out, um, especially late at night. And also my brother is here visiting from Mexico, or not from Mexico, sorry, from Phoenix. Uh, my brother and his wife uh, are living here in the States, and so we don't see them very often, so this is probably their best opportunity to see also their nephew, uh, Boaz, our son. So we really wanted to prioritize them uh, being able to spend time with us and with uh, Boaz, uh, so that's why they're not here today. Can you guys hear? Yes. Okay, so maybe it's just me not hearing you guys. Uh, not hearing the mic so much. All right. I'm going to share with you guys just a little bit, a few pictures about what we do, uh, just some vision casting. And I have a word I feel the Lord uh, wants me to share. Not something I really prepared. It's not what I had ready, but I, that's what the, I feel the Lord putting on my heart right now. Um, so I was here back in October. I didn't share very long about what it is that we're doing. So I'd like to take maybe a little bit more time to... Uh, just share about our journey, where we're at, where uh, we're at right now. Can I ask you for a favor? Can you look up on YouTube if you have access? Uh, you can also go to fieldsofwheat.org or YouTube, and there is a video, uh, Fields of Wheat Israel, and it's a short promo video for uh, one of the projects that we're doing uh, under this ministry. So about two years ago, we started a season of transition. What time do you guys normally finish? Okay, that's dangerous. I'm not going to commit to a specific time. And I'm not going to mislead you by saying that it's going to be short. Um, two years ago, we began a transition. We served five years in the House of Prayer in Jerusalem. Starting 2012 uh, up until about 2017. And in 2017... Well, I actually started in 2016 while I was in Kurdistan in Erbil. I had an encounter with the Lord. And I was on the floor for about 45 minutes, just in tears, weeping. And it was like God was birthing something in my heart. And just this groaning that started in my heart. And it's not something that you can fake in that sense. It's actually pretty embarrassing to be on the floor groaning and, and weeping. But the Lord was doing something on my heart and he was speaking to me about, about it being time to begin to send out young people into the harvest field. And it was time. It was, that's, that's the word that he kept repeating. It's time, it's time. And I didn't understand exactly what it meant. And at the time, I thought that we would be moving to Kurdistan to serve with the house of prayer there and serve with the refugees and begin to build relationships for the future for what God wanted to do in that region. And after, the, after this prayer time, I, I shared what the Lord was speaking to me in that moment. Uh, this young lady who's also from Israel came up to me and she said the Lord had been speaking to her exactly the same thing. And she ended up moving there. So I thought we would be moving there. She ended up moving there and living there. She's I think she's still living there at this point. It's been almost two years, a little bit over two years. And we went back to Israel. We thought we would be moving to Kurdistan. But as I began to pray about what happened, what, what the Lord was speaking, what had happened in my heart, I realized that what he was speaking to me had to do more with 
it was time to begin releasing young people into this call of going into the harvest field, going and serving in the nations. And we had been doing this, I had been doing this in the past, traveling with uh, young Arab people and going to other nations, but I saw that it wasn't being replicated. And what I felt the Lord speak to me was that it was time to begin training people to do it, meaning we weren't seeing it happen. And I was asking the Lord, how, how can we get young people to go together as Jewish and Arab people into the harvest field? And what I began to see is that it wouldn't happen until young people would set aside a season of time to actually do it, to actually go and live this for a season of life, to do discipleship together, to live together, uh, to work together, and then to go out into the harvest field together. And this is a word that the Lord had spoken to me in a dream many years ago in 2014. That's not many, but five years ago. Uh, He spoke to me in a dream about young people being raised up and being sent out together in teams of Jewish and Arab people together, what we call one you man teams. And so this is something that had been brewing in my heart for many years and I wasn't seeing it happen. And so the Lord began to direct us into, it was time to begin to establish a, a structure that would empower and allow young people to set aside a season of life for this. Now, we would call that a discipleship program. What a discipleship program in essence is, is a season of time where people are dedicated to growing in the Lord, uh, walking together in community, and then going out into the missions field together. And it's a dedicated season of time that sows seeds in your life that you carry for the rest of your life. And so this became my understanding for what the Lord was speaking to us as a family, to me, And so we began to pray about what would this look like? And we thought we would be establishing a discipleship program in the house of prayer. And then we were here in March, 2017, and the Lord began to change that. While I was uh, here in the States, I was in a church, uh, not at a church, but it was like the building behind the church that was hosting us. We were staying there. And I just took a morning to pray because I knew that we were going to be transitioning. I didn't know what it would look like. And the Lord spoke to me a very clear word uh, that I remember to this day. He just spoke to me a name. He said, Eitan Shishkov. And I don't expect you to know who that is, but Eitan is a leader in the Messianic body in Israel. He's a pastor. He's established five different congregations. And he spoke to me his name. I had known him for many years. He's known me since I was a little kid. Eitan runs or started, uh, he founded a youth camp movement in Israel called Katsir, or Harvest. And so I've known him for a long time. I was, uh, I was serving in these youth camps for quite a while. And so when God spoke to me his name, I knew, I knew that it was significant. Actually, my heart kind of dropped in that moment, and I said, oh no, because Eitan lives in the north, and I was living in Jerusalem at the time. And I never thought I would be leaving Jerusalem. And so my heart kind of dropped. Um, and I was pretty disappointed that that's the word the Lord would give me. But I heard it as clear as it could be. I knew it was God and I couldn't let it go. I couldn't shake it for a few months. I prayed and in the summer of 2017, I met with Eitan, shared with him what the Lord had spoken to me. And immediately our hearts just, God knitted them together. And I realized that he was calling me to serve under Eitan, to be mentored by him uh, and, his, and to work with him in his new ministry. Uh, He had established five congregations, but he established a new ministry called Fields of Wheat. And that's what I want to share with you is this video that's up here. Hopefully it'll work. Should be at the top. 
If it's not, then uh, just go to the YouTube. So this is the ministry that we're serving now under. I, so I, in 2017, we finally made the transition. We took a season to go through a discipleship program ourselves. We attended three different discipleship programs in eight months just to get ourselves immersed in discipleship, to get to know places where God had been moving and it looked different maybe in each place. They had different focuses, but we wanted to learn as much as we could from what people had done successfully for many years and what we wanted to implement in our discipleship program in the future. And also Eitan's son, David, uh, if you guys are interested, also I have uh, some brochures about our family and ministry. Eitan's son, David, had been running a discipleship program for many years and so it was a kind of a natural transition to, to join Eitan and his son uh, in this ministry of discipleship and the youth camps, which are also training and equipping. Uh, I want you to watch the video and then I'll share a little bit more about what this ministry is. Yeah, that's it. Because uh, 
we are uh, Arab uh, believers and uh, Messianic Jewish believers, and uh, Jesus, he removed the wall between uh, us and they gave us to be one. This project of seals of wheat, it's really an exciting project. It seals a vacuum uh, in the midst of the Messianic body of the land to have its own place where you can celebrate unity between Jew and Arab and Gentile. Fields of wheat is an awesome project. To be able to gather in the very place where Jesus did his ministry here on the earth, to bring believers from all over the country, we're a minority in this land, to be able to gather together as a large group is so encouraging. Young Israelis will be able to train together and learn in the spirit how to grow in the Lord and make an impact in Israel. We've been working with youth uh, for many years, over 20 years here in the land of Israel. We're excited to have something that we can personally call home. How will we bring this vision to fruition? We are actively pursuing the purchase of a property here in Galilee to create a village dedicated to hosting the presence of God together and equipping his children to bear good fruit. We can participate in demonstrating God's covenant faithfulness. That is why he's restoring Israel. And we can play a tangible part in it. As I stand here amidst the ripening harvest, can we hear the wind of the Spirit together? Please join us planting these fields of wheat, by plowing in prayer, by sowing financial seed gift. We invite you, dear brothers and sisters, to participate with us at the heart level from every tribe, language, and nation. Because we're one family together in Yeshua, let's meet him in the Galilee. All right. All right. All right. Um, so this is the ministry that we joined. This ministry started as a project for purchasing land. So it wasn't really a ministry at first. Uh, this video uh, will sh shows more of that aspect of this is a project that was meant to purchase a property that, was, that would serve the whole body of Messiah in Israel, Jewish and Arab. Now you have to understand that Israel, uh, the believers there are a, a extreme minority. We're about 25 to 30,000 believers which is less than half a percent of the population. We don't own a property where we can have our own camps, our own discipleship projects, our own retreats for churches. Like there's nothing that belongs to us as believers, meaning it's not just, it's not about our ministry owning it, but there's nothing that is owned by the local body that will serve the local body. Does that make sense? So here in Texas, I already know of several different retreat centers that serve churches in this whole state, pretty much, where churches can go on retreats, where youth can go on camps, uh, where there's different programs and internships and things that happen. And at this point, there's nothing like that that we can use as a facility to train and equip the body of Christ in Israel. So this started as a project to meet a need that exists in Israel. Over this past year, we've really been transitioning this project into a ministry. So building it 
as a ministry focus, not just a project. What I mean by that is there is a vision that is already happening and it's not just about, well, one day we'll purchase land and one day this stuff will happen and it'll be great. It's here's what's happening on the ground. We're running youth camps three times a year. We're doing discipleship uh, once a year for a few months. Uh, we're doing outreach and there's, there's a lot more that can happen once we have a property, but this is the stuff that's happening right now actively. This is Fields of Wheat as a ministry is running youth camps and discipleship. That's part of our vision. And our hope is to one day be able to find a home for this ministry. And it'll host a lot more than just what we're doing, but this is what we're doing actively right now until one day we find a home for it. Does that make sense? And so... This is, this is our heart to serve the Jewish and Arab population in Israel. And we do that through, uh, I do that specifically through this ministry in two different uh, ministry projects. And I'll share that with you. Uh, if you can go back to the presentation. The first project that we are a part of actively, uh, this is the reason that we moved up north and joined is we are part of a discipleship program. That's, uh, yeah, you can go to the map. That's where we live. If you can see on the map, right up there about 15 minutes west of Tiberias and the Sea of Galilee, we live in a small uh, rural village, very similar to kind of what you see here, a lot of open space, open fields, uh, a lot of farming. Uh, That's where we live. And what we run there is a discipleship program called Olive Tree. You can go down. And Olive Tree serves uh, post-military Jewish uh, believers. So these are guys that are released from the army. And a lot of guys, after they get out of the army, they're looking for some sort of program. Uh, It's the next slide. Some sort of program that they can do to strengthen their faith, restore their walk with the Lord. And what we're doing this year is we're opening it up for Arab people as well. So we're, we're wanting to train Jewish and Arab people together. And this is a pretty big challenge. You're talking about a lot of politics and, and difference of opinion and the, theology. And we're just praying that the Lord brings the right people who want to be a part of this and young people who don't care so much about our differences and are willing to walk together for a season of life to do this. And so what we do is uh, we're going to focus on, you can, you, can stay up, you can stay up at the top at that. Yeah, exactly. Um, this project focuses on equipping them to walk with the Lord, to dedicate their life to walking with the Lord together and to walk together in unity. Uh, we dedicate, we're going to dedicate the morning. So this, this program will take place October 13th through December 23. So about three months, including an outreach to Ethiopia and to Jordan, uh, hopefully to Jordan, to refugees, uh, God willing. So that's one of our main goals is to be able to take young people out uh, on outreach to other nations, to other cultures, where they can experience what God is doing in other places outside of Israel. And one of the reasons we do, as you can see, there's an olive tree and a goat, and you can ask, why do we do that? So we do agricultural work as part of our uh, discipleship program. The reason we do that is because when you're in the classroom too much, you discover that you have a lot of differences of opinion. And sometimes that's great. You want to teach truth, but sometimes you want to create relationship and trust above everything else. And you want to create an atmosphere of cooperation and friendship. And that happens when you put your hands together to the plow and do something. 
And so that's part of the reason why we're uh, dedicating a few hours each day to work in an olive grove. And we're also going to be volunteering in a goat farm that's owned by a Messianic family. It's the only such agricultural farm that's owned by believers. And so that's part of the reason why it's important for us to serve with believers in the land who own an agricultural business. There's not a lot of them. Uh, and it's, it's supporting a, a, a work that is almost like a ministry in that sense. And so we believe that the focus on working together, building cooperation, being outside of the classroom, being outside, having conversation, building trust, building relationship will go much further than, the, than just teaching biblical truths if, you know, during the morning and having someone teach you and you sit and listen. And also what happens is when you spend more than two or three hours in a classroom, you probably only retain about 10% of what you hear. And so that's great, but that's probably not the most important aspect of discipleship. So that's what we're doing. Uh, you can be praying for that. That's going to be October through December. We really appreciate your prayer for that. We're just in the process of getting all the details together and the schedule and, and how we're going to do it. And we just need a lot of grace to find the right people to run, to be a part of this, young people who will desire to be a part of this. Uh, you can go to the next slide. The second, uh, yep, there we go. The second one uh, that we're actively a part of is Katsir. Katsir means harvest. It's youth camps that take, part, uh, take place three times a year. We serve about 90 to 100 uh, teenagers each time. Now, again, you have to understand numbers in Israel. When you only have about 25,000 believers, 100 teenagers is a pretty large number. They come from all over the land, from a wide variety of churches. And they come for either three days or a week, depending which camp we're doing, just to experience the presence of God. Uh, we are a spirit, I don't know what you would call it, but a spirit-focused or spirit-filled camp, as you want to define it. Uh, we believe in the power of God and the presence of God to transform lives. And so that's our top priority, is allowing for the presence of God to transform their lives and then to also teach and do small group discipleship. They have a small group leaders. Uh, they, each day, they split up into an hour of small groups of five to six people with a, with a leader and just to spend time together, to pray together, uh, share their hearts, uh, get to connect on a more relational level. And another reason that these camps are important is because of the fellowship. A lot of these kids are isolated where they're at. Uh, in their churches, they may have very few youth. In their cities, there may be very few. They're, they're lucky if they're even a part of a youth group. Um, a lot of churches don't even have youth groups. And in schools, most of the time they're alone. And so a lot of the believers in Israel are, are unless you're in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, which are like the two major hubs, if you're in other places in Israel, you're pretty isolated as a believer. And so these camps serve as a, probably one of the best opportunities for them to experience fellowship with a wide variety and a, a larger number of believers their age. Kids, they only get to see a few times a year, uh, be together in worship in an atmosphere that is godly, that is filled with the presence of God. And this is really important to, to create a space where God can move. I myself uh, attended these camps as a teenager. God completely transformed my life when I, uh, going to these camps. I gave my life to the Lord in a youth camp here in the States. And when I was 17, I was 18 at the time, uh, God, I had a very powerful encounter with God in one of these camps 
where God delivered me out of a lot of things that I was, I was struggling with at the time. Uh, my dad and my mom had separated and I, I was filled with hatred for my dad. I had nightmares about killing him. Um, and so God did a very deep work in my heart through these camps to restore my heart, restore my, my, my life uh, really, uh, and fill me with forgiveness and love for my dad. So I've personally experienced what happens uh, in these camps. And I know what God can do. We've seen it happen over and over. And this is part of the reason we're, we're on the leadership team for these camps. And at the end of this year, I'll be taking over directing the camps. Uh, when we get back to Israel on Monday, a week later, we start our summer camp, which is a week long. So we really appreciate your prayers also for that. Um, this is a very important time to really reach the next generation and train them we call it in, in, in Israel, we like to call it pre-army discipleship and post-army discipleship because pretty much everyone's life at that age revolves around the military. Everyone knows they're going into the military. And so that's one of the things they're all talking about once they reach age 15, 16, they're starting to prepare for that. They're starting to do tests for where they're going to go in the army and where they're going to serve. And so this is like people's lives around our, our, our people's lives at that age revolve around the military, what they're gonna do in the military, where they're gonna serve, how long they're gonna serve. And so this is an important, uh, an extremely important time to train, equip and reach the next generation because many of my friends, where we lose the most people is in the military. Many, many of my friends have walked away from the Lord during their military service because you're extremely isolated, you're disconnected, you're under, immense peer pressure, very ungodly um, environment. And you're in that for three years. And so it's not conducive to a very healthy walk with the Lord during that time. It's like walking in the desert for three years. Um, and so many of my friends have lost their faith in God, have rejected the idea of God or have walked away from God during the time, during the time in the army. And these, these are people, some of them were worship leaders, some of them were youth leaders before they went into the army. Uh, some of these guys were really passionate about the Lord as teenagers, but the enemy just comes in and brings discouragement, lies, um, condemnation about failure, different things. And so I really struggled with my faith in the army as well. And so this is just part of the process of living in the land. And this is part of the reason why equipping teenagers and getting a hold of them before they go to the army is extremely important and also to restore their walk with the Lord after the army, to give them a fresh opportunity to walk with God, to make uh, good decisions, to pray about what is the next stage of their life gonna look like. Are they gonna walk with the Lord? If you can get a hold of them after the army, they are most likely going to continue walking with the Lord for the rest of their life. Uh, but if, if you don't get a hold of them, a lot of them during that, during that time is where they lose their faith, right in the military. And if they don't reconnect with God right after that time, it's much, much harder to get them back into community of believers. And so this is part of our, our mandate is to reach and equip the next generation that the enemy is fighting over in the land. Um, so this is, this is what we do. If you're interested to know more, uh, you can talk to me afterwards. You can also sign up for email updates. I'll put up a paper for that in the back if you're interested. And that's it. That's all I'll share about our ministry at this point. I'm going to take maybe, I hope it'll be 15 minutes to share what the Lord's put on my heart uh, for you guys. 
Father, I just ask that you would bring clarity. Father, we ask for your presence. We thank you that you are here. Lord, I ask that you would challenge us and speak to us today, Lord. Hallelujah. We thank you, Abba, for your goodness today. Lord, would you lead uh, my heart, my words? Would you anoint them in, in Yeshua's name? Amen. All right, so I'm going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. And it says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed its glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So Paul is talking about what I call the ministry of the Spirit. And that's the words that he uses here. We've been giving something called the ministry of the Spirit. And this ministry does different things in our lives. But I want you to notice the words that he uses here in terms of ministry. He... he, He almost exchanges words. On one place he says, ministry of the Spirit. And then he calls it here the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, which came with glory. And then he said, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? And then he calls it the ministry of condemnation. And then he says the ministry of righteousness. So we see that he's equating the ministry of the letter, or what is the letter, with the ministry of death and condemnation. This is also something you can find in Romans chapter 8. The ministry of condemnation, the ministry of death. Condemnation brings death. Which is why Paul opens up with the words, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves. Paul understood that self-sufficiency is probably the greatest lie of the enemy. And what happens when we try to be self-sufficient, what happens when we try to be perfect in our own way, is we end up falling into condemnation because it's impossible. And when we fall into condemnation, the enemy brings condemnation and condemnation brings death. And what Paul talks about the ministry of the Spirit is... Righteousness. He calls it the ministry of righteousness. Now, what is the ministry of righteousness? He goes on to say, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is all within a context, right? Where the Spirit is, there is righteousness, there is freedom, there is life. 
Righteousness is our condition before the Lord. It's not dependent on us. It's not dependent on, have I been good enough? It's not dependent on, have I done things right? And that's why he, he says it's not the letter, it's the spirit. Why? Because the letter is about getting everything right. It's about getting everything perfect. It's about living life in a way that we feel like we've done it right. And as human beings, we love the idea that we can fit everything into a box and get it all right. It's why we love rules. It's why we love people to just tell us, can you just tell me how to do this? Can you just give me an answer? Can you just give me, do this and don't do this, and then I know that I've done it right. It's an easy answer. The problem with that is that it lacks relationship. It's the leadership of man versus the leadership of God. It's doing things right in, in a way that makes us feel like we've done it instead of allowing God to transform our hearts and letting him do it. I equate what he says here in the letter to another phrase that Paul says, I don't remember exactly where it's at, but he says, having all the form of godliness, but denying its power. Meaning you can have all the structure to have everything exactly right, which by the way is a lot of churches today, right? You can have all the structure to get it all right. We can have the structure of the service and we know exactly what's going minute by minute and who's going to be doing this prayer and who's going to be doing this song and we'll do this worship service and it'll finish exactly at this time and then we'll have this message and people will feel great and we'll have the whole form. Like you can replace, what happens is that you can have the form, exchange the people, change the content and everything will run smoothly but God is actually never there. It's lacking the power. It's lacking the presence. It has all of the form. Church can run smoothly. Your life can run smoothly. Everything seems to fit correctly. Everything's going well. But it's lacking something. It's lacking the presence of God. It's lacking the power of God in the life. And God is much more interested that we allow his presence and his power to have an active role in our life more than getting everything right. I don't know what it is about our humanity that we love. We just love fitting things into boxes to make us feel safe. It gives us safety when we're told how to do things and, and, and just tell me how to do it and I'll do it and then I'll know I'm safe, I'm good. You can check a V on it, right? It gives us a sense of safety and control. But that's the opposite of the power of God. It's when we lose control of things that God can actually begin to move us and change us. And righteousness is our condition before the Lord that is not dependent on how have we done things today. I'm not righteous today and yesterday I wasn't and tomorrow I am. And righteousness does not change day to day. Righteousness did change under the old covenant based on what you did because what he says in Hebrews is that sacrifices had to be done over and over. Why? Because one wasn't enough. So there was a constant need to renew our righteousness before the Lord. Our righteousness was defined by an outwardly form of godliness, but it never changed the heart. 
and never dealt with the heart and never dealt with the inside of a man and what is, what is flowing inside the heart. You can change behavior, but it doesn't mean you've changed the person's heart. We have lots of ways to change a person's behavior. This is where psychologists come in and, and psychiatry and so many different aspects of, of life. You can change a person's behavior. That's actually not that hard to do. But changing a person's heart and his mind is much, much harder. And that's where God gets at. Righteousness does not change based on who we are. It does not change based on what we do. Righteousness is a condition before the Lord. And what it does is righteousness gives us access, right? It says we can approach his throne with confidence because we have the blood of Christ that speaks a better word. We can approach with confidence because of righteousness, because we are blameless before him. That is a condition we have been granted as a gift from Christ. That is what we call grace. It's a gift that we've been given and it far surpasses what the law could do for us. Righteousness far surpasses what conditions and rules and regulations and and all of the structures that we make cannot replace the need for that condition before the Lord. Righteousness, and it's given through Christ in his blood. The ministry of the Spirit is righteousness, and what it does is righteousness brings us It gives us access. It brings us into the presence of God. We have access to what was previously inaccessible, what people could not experience, what people could not see and, and, and hear, what they could not have contact with. The only people who could go into the Holy of Holies were the priests, and even that was once a year. There was no access to the presence of God. And God did away with that system because he much... He desired much more, what? The living temple, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit within man so that he could dwell together with him, so that he could direct his steps, so that he could be that presence that is living inside of us. He wanted us to have access to the presence of God. And this is what Paul is referring to when he says, this is a covenant that has much more glory. Why? Because the other covenant, the old covenant had glory, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't the greater glory. It wasn't what God wanted. It wasn't the fullness of what God wanted. And what God wanted was him dwelling inside of man, the presence of God being with us, us having access to him personally and allowing his power to work in our life, to transform us, to touch us. This is what we call the greater glory. Now Moses, when he was in uh, Exodus 33, Moses, we know Moses wasn't perfect. And Moses is crying out to the Lord. He says, God, I will not go from this place. Do not take us up. I would rather die in the desert than if you, do not, if you do not go with us. Moses preferred dying in the desert to going without his presence. Moses was hungry for the presence of God that was tangible and real and present, that walked with him. Now, many people miss the fact that the cloud and the pillar of fire, right, that wasn't just an accident. 
or that wasn't just a sign, this great sign from heaven that there was a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire that came down by night. It was, it says that the angel, the angel of the Lord was in the cloud and in the fire. Meaning the pre-incarnate Yeshua, what we call the revelation of Jesus before he became flesh, before he became man, right? That's all over the Old Testament. You can look it up. That's in, jo- that's in the book of Joshua as well, where he sees the angel of the Lord. Uh, the angel of the Lord refers to God himself, right? The angel of the armies of heaven. That's God himself. That's the pre-incarnate Jesus. It says that the angel of the Lord was in the pillar of fire, was in the smoke, meaning he was walking right there with them. That pillar wasn't there as a sign. That pillar was there because Jesus was there. That fire was there because Jesus was there. He was in it. Now, that's an incredible revelation because Jesus punishes them for 40 years and then he walks out that punishment punishment with them for 40 years. It wasn't like, okay, here's your punishment. Go walk it out on your own. I'll meet you at the other side in 40 years. It was, here's what happens when you disobey. I'm going to walk it out with you. I'm going to be right there with you those 40 years. And so his presence was with them all those 40 years. But Moses was hungry, so hungry for God that he was willing to die instead of go without him. He would rather die than go without the presence. He understood God's heart, what he wanted. And so Moses asked him, let me see your glory. When we talk about glory, a lot of times we think something that's way, I think way way more sophisticated than what it was meant to be, right? He says, let me see your glory. And, And God says, that he cannot see his face, but what does he do? How does he respond to his request? Moses wanted to see his glory and God passes by him and he sees the back of his head or his neck. I don't know what you, uh, what is it called in English? Well, there's a specific word I can't remember, but um, I know it in Hebrew, but it won't matter. He sees, it's, it's the back of his head. He sees the back of his head and the back of his neck. And what, is, what does he say? He caused, he caused his goodness to pass before him. So in Exodus, God is equating his glory. Moses asked to see his glory. God passed his goodness. God, he did answer his prayer, right? He allowed him to see his glory, but his glory was his goodness. He got to see the goodness of God. He got to experience the goodness of God. God's glory is for us to experience his goodness. Sin disconnects us from our ability to meet him in his goodness. The glory of God is that we experience his goodness, that we get to see his goodness expressed in our lives. And that's why Paul says that his promises are yes in him. Why? Because he is well pleased to show us his goodness. That is the revelation of his glory. He prefers that we meet his goodness more than we get it right. We try to get it right all the time. When we worry more about getting it right, when we worry more about following the rules, about being perfect, doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. I think you guys get what I'm saying. Is when we think that we can accomplish it on our own, that we are good enough to do it, when we think that we are sufficient enough, is when we stop seeing his goodness in our life is when we, we put it on us 
and we, we stop encountering his goodness. We've disconnected from his ability to lead us and provide for us and show us the way and speak to us. We've become self-sufficient. There's a great uh, theologian, if you haven't read his books, I would highly recommend it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, lived in Nazi Germany during World War II, ended up losing his life for helping Jewish people escape from Germany and for standing uh, with the Allies. He was a spy for, for the Allies uh, as he served in the intelligence and he was a pastor at the same time. He has a wild story. Uh, his biography is awesome. I would recommend it to anyone. Also his book, The Cost of Discipleship, but he also wrote a book called, called Ethics. And if you don't know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he supported one of the reasons he was executed just days before the war ended. That's how much Hitler and the leadership hated him. They made sure that him, that he and his uh, fellow conspirators died even when they knew they were going to lose. Meaning they, there was no way they were gonna come out of that war alive. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer as a pastor supported the Valkyrie, what's called Valkyrie operation. It was an operation to try to kill Hitler. And as he was in prison, uh, after supporting this plot, he wrote a book called Ethics. And Ethics deals with this idea of, are we supposed to live, what is the calling of Christian life? Is it to, to live life perfectly, to follow the rules perfectly? And he came to the conclusion, he had to deal with this moral issue of, do we support killing Hitler or not as believers? And they came to him, the leaders of this plot, one of them was his brother-in-law, uh, they came to him asking for support, meaning they were struggling with the morality of their decision to kill a leader in government, and they weren't sure if that was right or not. And they came to him as a pastor, and they said, they, they asked him what he thinks, and they asked for his support. They needed moral support in what they were doing, and uh, Bonhoeffer struggled with it for a season until he came to the realization that he knew what was happening to the Jewish people. He knew the evil of, of what the government was doing, and he felt compelled that words at that point were not enough. That simply speaking out against government was not enough. And so he decided that it was time to do something more to stop what was happening. If that's what it took, then that's what it would take. And he said, one day I may stand before the Lord and I may be wrong. He said, I may be wrong for supporting this. We may be making the wrong decision, but this is what I feel is the right thing for us today. And he came to the conclusion that Christian life was not about getting it perfect. It was about allowing God to lead us and making mistakes. And if we, if we were committed to allowing God to lead us and make mistakes along the way, his grace would be enough to cover those mistakes because what was more important to God was that we were following his leadership, or at least trying to, even if we got it wrong sometimes. Imagine struggling with the decision of, do we support killing somebody? You know, that's even to this day, that's a very strong, there's a lot of argument, you know, whether that's the right thing to do or not. But he said, it doesn't matter. It's not about getting it right. It doesn't matter. He was willing to say, I could be wrong. But at this point, I feel like this is what we must do as believers. We cannot stand on the side anymore. We have to do something. And we may be wrong, we may be judged for it by God, but that is okay, it's worth the price because this is what f we feel is right, and we, but we could be wrong. Meaning as people, we hear the voice of God wrong sometimes and that's okay. The more important question is, are you committed to allow him to lead you and make mistakes along the way? That's okay. 
That's why righteousness is not based on perfection. It's based on allowing his leadership to lead us into perfection, to lead us into his grace, to allow us to meet with his goodness. Lord, what do you want from me in this season? What do you want from me today? Show me your goodness. I had a very powerful encounter. I finished with the story. I had a very powerful encounter when I was in uh, Cyprus in this discipleship program. And for many years, I struggled with this idea that I wasn't good enough for God. What I, what I did wasn't good enough or my life wasn't good enough. And struggling a lot with the feeling like I, I had to earn his favor. I had to earn his, his blessing in a way. And when, he, when sometimes we would receive blessing from the Lord or we would, we would see something happen amazing, I would almost feel inadequate. Like I'm not good enough for something like this to happen to me. And that was, my, that was my honest feelings. I'm not good enough for God to do this stuff in my life. And while I was in Cyprus, I had this vision and um, I was, we were in the middle of a classroom actually and the teacher had to stop teaching because everybody was pretty much on the floor. And just the Holy Spirit showed up and we're all on the floor and people are weeping, people are laughing. It was, it was awesome and weird at the same time. And I'm, I'm laying there on the floor and I can feel the presence of God. And all of a sudden I see a vision and I see Jesus and he's reaching out with his arms to me and he doesn't say a word. He's just standing like this. And as I saw his face, all I could think of, all I understood was his goodness was pouring over me. And it was like waves of electricity just hitting my body. And it was his goodness. That's the only way I could understand it. And all I could say is I, I was weeping and I was saying, God, why are you so good to me? Why are you so good to me? Meaning I felt ashamed of, I don't deserve it. Why are you so good to me? I don't, I don't get it. It's, it's, I don't understand it. Why would you be so good to me? I don't deserve it. And, and that day God changed my perspective about his goodness. Meaning I had been feeling inadequate. I fail too much. I'm inadequate as a person. I'm not good enough. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not sufficient enough to receive your goodness. And what God was saying was, it doesn't matter. I'm good to you anyways. It's not dependent on you. It's not dependent on me. It's not dependent on, do we get it right? It's not dependent on, are we perfect? Am I good enough? It's, he is good. He is good. And he wants to show his goodness. He wants to pour out his glory. And that's really all that matters. How hungry are you to experience his glory? Like Moses, how hungry are you to experience his goodness? I lied, I'm gonna share one more story. In Acts chapter 10, but I will finish with this. In Acts chapter 10, and this has been my challenge for me this season. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius sends for, for Peter. And he sees an angel and he tells him what to do. And there's a very interesting phrase in there. It says, your, your prayers and your alms have gone up before the Lord as a memorial. And when Peter comes to share, it says that as Peter was speaking, they began to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now this is to them unimaginable. Gentiles should not be receiving the Holy Spirit. They can't even be saved. Like there's no salvation for the Gentiles. Like that's really what they're thinking. Um, in their mind, salvation is still to the Jew only. 
That's all they've known. Salvation, the, Jesus was the Messiah of the Jews. Like that's, that's what they're thinking. Until now, the only people saved have been Jews. And they're thinking it's unimaginable that the Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit. They're not even saved. Now what was happening in that situation? There's so much more there that we're, that we're not told, I believe. But it's, if you read into the story and you understand people's hearts and how they work, what was happening in that moment that as Peter is speaking and he's not even finished speaking the truth, they're already receiving it. They're already saying yes to it, meaning they've already been saved without anybody laying hands and praying for them. Right? If you go back to Peter in Acts chapter 2 and 3, he's having to give this great message to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And they, they say, what must we do to be saved? So he had to explain everything and get to the end. And they're asking him, well, what do we do now? Right? And so the, they pray for them and be baptized and, and accept Jesus. Um, and then normally you would lay on hands, the way they had experiences, you lay hands and pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's not what happened in Acts chapter 2, but that's how it, that's how it happened afterwards. Is they, by the laying of hands, people would receive the Holy Spirit. But here, it's like God is breaking the norm, or maybe not laying on hands. Sorry, it's baptism. They'd be baptized, and then they would receive the Holy Spirit. Here, it's like the norm was being broken. They haven't even been baptized, which is the sign of salvation. It's baptism. It's not a prayer. It's a baptism. And... They haven't been baptized, but they're receiving the Holy Spirit, meaning they've been saved somehow. Doesn't make sense to them. Somehow they've been saved. They're speaking in tongues. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. This is all mind-boggling to them. This is like a new blueprint that they haven't seen before. And what was happening in that moment is that Cornelius and his household Here's what was happening. Cornelius, it says that he was a righteous man before the Lord and he was loved by the people. He did good to them. Meaning Cornelius had done everything right. He was getting everything perfect. He was righteous before the Lord. But it, he knew that it wasn't enough. That's what I believe. Somehow, his prayers and his alms, why does the angel mention that? Because the answer of God was through the angel was, I'm bringing salvation to your household go to Peter and he will, he will share with you what the way is, right? So the angel appearing was actually an answer to a prayer that he had been praying, Lord, this is what I believe, Lord, there must be more. There must be more than this. I believe he was hungering and thirsting for righteousness, like it says in uh, Matthew chapter five. He was hungry and thirsty for righteousness, right? The ministry of righteousness, and he knows, I've done everything right, but there has to be more. This can't be it. He's not satisfied. Getting everything right, being righteous before the Lord, being loved by the people, this, this can't be the end of it. There has to be more than this. And his prayers go up before the Lord as a remembrance. And one day he brings an answer. And what is he saying is, I'm rewarding you for your hunger. You've been hungry for something more. Here it is, I'm giving it to you. Here's the truth. Here's the way. And as Peter is sharing it, Cornelius already knows. Here, I mean, he's already received the word of the angel. He already knows this is the truth. And he's saying yes to it in his heart before Peter even asked them to respond. They were, they were so hungry for truth that they were saying yes to it before they even had an opportunity to respond. 
they're already responding. They're already saying yes in their heart. Their hunger drew down heaven. Their hunger brought salvation to the Gentiles. Their hunger allowed the Holy Spirit to move in a way that was unprecedented. And they're receiving the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit outside of the norm, outside of, they haven't even been baptized by water. There's no blueprint for this. There's no form. There's no structure for what was happening. It was outside of their, their, their structures. That's what I'm saying. You can have all the form of godliness, but it denies the power of God. God moves outside of structures. He moves outside of what we create. Okay, God, you can move in this box right here. They had a way to do things, and God said, here's my way to do things. And they were experiencing the glory of God in that household. They said that his whole household was baptized that day. And from there on out, salvation came to the Gentiles. Imagine the hunger in his heart for something like that to happen. What was happening in that person's heart to say, Lord, there must be more. There must be more to this than just what we've been doing. And that's my challenge to us today is that are we hungry, like Moses, like Cornelius, are we hungry for the presence? We can have all the form, we can have all the structure right, but are we willing for God to move outside of our structures, outside of our forms, outside of our boxes? Are we hungry for the glory of God to be expressed in ways that maybe we're not comfortable in, that we may not know? If He changes everything about how we do things, that would be okay. Well, we do it this way. Well, let me do it this way. Would that be okay? If we're used to things being a certain way and God says, well, I want to do it a little bit different. Would we be offended at God or will we be okay with it? See, a lot of Jews were offended with the Gentiles coming into salvation at that moment. There was a lot of offense. There was a lot of resistance. And thankfully, there were a few pe people who recognized that, no, this is God. This is God doing something greater. Peter and James, especially in Acts 15. They recognized that moment, what God was doing. And that's our challenge. Are we hungry? Are we wanting to experience more than just what we're used to? Are we, are we self-sufficient or are we re recognizing how, how lacking we are? Are we hungry and thirsty for righteousness? For more of God? Amen. Let's stand together and finish with prayer and uh, I'll, allow, I'll allow Paul to uh, finish. Father, I, I, uh, let's stand together. Father, I just ask right now, Lord, that you would stir our hearts with hunger for your presence, Lord. We ask that we would be like Moses who said, God, I'm not willing to move from this place if you don't go with me with your presence, with your glory. Lord, let me see your glory. God, I, I, I have to see your goodness expressed in my life. I have to see your glory expressed in my life. Father, we thank you for the access that we have that is unprecedented into greater glory, into greater riches than, than that that anybody else previously could have had. You want us to have access into the throne room to see your face to see the glory of God shining on the face of Messiah, to experience your goodness. Father, stir hunger in our hearts for the presence of God to be expressed in our midst. 
Father, stir our hearts to hunger and thirst for your righteousness to be expressed in our lives, to understand that we are not sufficient in, our, in ourselves. There's nothing about us that is sufficient. We're not good enough, but that's okay. That's how you love us. You love us as jars of clay, broken, weak vessels that you put the treasures of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in. It says that we've been given this treasure in jars of clay. God, you love our brokenness. You love our weakness more than you love our perfection. More than anything else, God, you desire that we be sufficient on you, Lord. That we be dependent and fully dependent on you, God. Our righteousness is from you, Lord. This is our condition before you. You say that you are well pleased with us as sons and daughters. We are good enough in your eyes. We're not perfect and that's okay. You love us exactly how we are. You meet us exactly where we're at today with all of our struggles and all of our weaknesses. You are pleased with us. God, we're hungry for you to move in our, in our midst, Lord. God, I ask for this church, God, that they would experience a move of God. Would you pour out your spirit over this place, Lord, in greater ways? Father, would you pour out your love in greater ways in this place, Lord? God, what attracts people is not, not structures and not anything else, but it would be your presence, that it would be the presence that is manifest in our communities that would attract people and say, there's something about this place that is different. God, let us not be satisfied with what was. Let us not be satisfied with what we've seen until now. Father, we want to know that there's more. We want to believe that there must be more. Like Cornelius, Lord, let our prayers, prayers go up before you as remembrance. Believing, God, there must be more than this. Lord, there must be more than this. We're hungry for you to move. We're hungry for your spirit. We're hungry for your glory to be shown, to be revealed, to be expressed in our lives and in our midst. We need you, Abba. We need you, Lord. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen.